0: Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. It's impossible to completely extract the U.S. comic tradition from anti-blackness at its origins. Many of our still prevailing comedic conventions were established by blackface minstrel troops who thereafter provided the talent base for vaudeville and burlesque theater. Mark Twain first encountered what we now call stand-up as part of the minstrel show which was, during his childhood in Missouri, his foremost exposure to the performing arts. Twain's comedic lectures, begun in 1866, dramatically expanded and elevated this form. More importantly, with the help of James Redpath, Twain avoided vaudeville altogether, delivering his stand-up instead on the Lyceum Circuit, an infrastructure that had been closely associated with the abolitionist movement. Twain performed in venues that had previously hosted Ralph Waldo Emerson and Abraham Lincoln, and shared programs with Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony. The success of Twain's American Vandal Tour revitalized this circuit and initiated a restructuring, which turned it from a network of activism and education to one of leisure and entertainment. Twain took a form of blackface minstrelsy and used it to colonize what had been a space of emancipatory politics. As far as I'm concerned, that is the origin story of stand-up comedy as we now know it. The infrastructure of comedy was transformed again on New Year's Eve 1975, with the airing of the premiere episode of HBO's On Location, the first of several series and specials which made HBO into the most powerful distributor of stand-up. Landing an HBO set or special was a triumph in and of itself, but was also frequently the launchpad to stardom on network sitcoms, talk shows, or films. The peak of HBO's dominance over global comedy was the 1990s, during which it also owned a controlling share of Comedy Central, in addition to airing groundbreaking stand-up specials, HBO platformed black comics through Russell Simmons' Deaf Comedy Jam, a staple of the network's late-night programming. But it is quite telling that Deaf Comedy Jam's 25th anniversary special did not run on HBO, but instead on Netflix. In less than five years, starting in 2015, Netflix produced more hours of stand-up than HBO had in four decades. HBO is, for the first time in its history, a clear runner up, and has been trying to revise and revive its comedy division largely by building relationships with black millennial comic creators like Gerard Carmichael, Sam Jay, and most of all, Issa Rae, star and showrunner of the critical and commercial hit Insecure, and executive producer of half a dozen other HBO projects which are either now airing or in development. In this episode, We're talking about the Issa Rae extended universe. Our conversation is inspired in part by Insecure co-star Yvonne Orji's second HBO special, released last week, but also delves into the broader landscape of stand-up and scripted comedy by black women creators on HBO and elsewhere. Jalila Burrell is assistant professor of African American Studies at Loyola Marymount University. She researches the history of comedy, hip-hop, and black women in the U.S., You may remember her from our episode on Dave Chappelle and Killjoy Comedy in 2020, or her presentation on Arabelle Thompson at the 2020 Quarry Farm Symposium. Danielle Fuentes Morgan is Associate Professor of English and Ethnic Studies at Santa Clara University and author of Laughter to Keep from Dying, African American Satire in the 21st Century. Some of her other recent work is on Dave Chappelle, Donald Glover's Atlanta, and HBO's Black Lady Sketch Show. For more about our guests and a bibliography of materials mentioned in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash rooting for everybody. In
1: around 2016,
0: 2017, HBO, and particularly HBO's creative content director, Casey Bloys, started talking a lot about representation, about how HBO needed to do a a better job with representation and how much he was going to care about representation going forward. Clearly, this is at the post-2016 election moment. There were a lot of potential rationalizations for why HBO was making those kinds of public statements during that time period. There were numerous projects that were started and and aired uh, and went into production in those years, but perhaps none more successful, nor given more sort of promotional prominence than Issa Rae's Insecure. Going back and watching some of Insecure recently, one of the things that really stood out to me is that I think a consistent source of humor in the show is the politics of representation and the oftentimes empty rhetoric associated therewith. And so I thought we might start by trying to frame what has happened with HBO Given your backgrounds, particularly maybe HBO's comedy, Mm -hmm. in the last five or six years, has it been successful in fulfilling those claims that Blois made at the outset? And what do you make of its ability to platform and represent, I think, particularly Black women, but maybe Blackness in general?
2: There's that famous quote from... Lisa Rae on, like, maybe it was the Emmys red carpet, I'm not sure, but she said she was rooting for everybody black.
0: This was at the Emmys in 2017.
2: The Right Network came along and that was HBO. Happened to be HBO, no big deal. Yes, they've (laughs) been a great home. And last but not least, who are you rooting for tonight? I'm rooting for um, everybody black, (laughs) I am. (laughs) Betting on black tonight. Lovely, you look great. When I think about Insecure HBO and Issa Rae, I think it as being a launch pad to facilitate her entry, you know, her deeper entry into entertainment and those of other folks that she was associated with, right? Starting, you know, starting from the awkward black girl. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I think about insecure, what's, what resonates about insecure is the way that we watched it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was very similar to how folks were watching the, you know, Shonda Rhimes universe. So <laughs> how people were watching How to Get Away with Murder, how people were watching Scandal. That's how people are watching Intercare. there There's conversations about it. It's starting trending topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of prominence then powers subsequent seasons, right? Because people are engaged. I see Issa Rae leveraging whatever lip service HBO mm-hmm. is giving to representation and saying, I'm going to use my model that I used on social media, and I'm going to launch a number of careers, particularly when you think about the writer's room and whatnot, allow people the opportunity to cut their teeth and try new things and try out their voices. So that's what I see. I see it more as Issa Bray and those she's associated with recognizing an opportunity and taking advantage of it, as opposed to HBO doing something, you know, cutting edge.
3: Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think that one of the things that's been so interesting about Issa Rae's career, once she gets to HBO in particular, is that idea that she's articulated of wanting to display regular black people living life, what she's described as regular black people living life, the way that Insecure did that. And then she's branched off into all of these other realms Shows like Rap Shit, her work with Black Lady Sketch Show, and all of these kinds of other fields that demonstrate regular Black people living life in a variety of ways. And so she created this space for herself based on HBO's articulation that they were going to create spaces. She put her foot in the door and then was able to create all of these other spaces for this wide variety of Black identities, and in particular, Black women's identities, that she's created this space and is backing it up. You know, we can really focus on the way Issa Rae has done this, but it has provided so many opportunities for other people that it's really just, when you think about how young she is and how many careers she's jump-started, it's really sort of this phenomenal moment to witness.
2: With that, the point about showcasing regular Black people, if we just want to bring another sitcom into the conversation, that's part of the Black sitcom history, I think about that episode of The Cosby Show where Theo is saying that you know he just wants to be regular.
0: Jalila is alluding to a scene from the pilot episode of The Cosby Show. Here's a little taste. How do you expect to get into college with grades like this?
2: No problem. Huh? See, I'm not going to college.
1: Damn right.
2: (laughs) I am going to get through high school and then get a job like regular people.
0: Regular people?
2: Yeah, you know, work in the gas station, drive a bus, something like that.
0: (laughs) So what you're saying is your, your mother and I shouldn't care if you get D's because you don't need
1: good grades to be regular people.
2: Right. Yeah. And what, what that episode was sort of demonstrating was pushing back against this inclination of achievement to prove something to the larger public. Thinking within this black middle class community or black upper middle class community that one has to achieve, that one has to be this, it actually limits your options because everything is about advancing the race. So Theo like bristles against that. And then part of the joke is that after Theo opens up his heart and tells Heath Clifford (laughs) Huxtable how he really just wants to live a regular life and have a motorcycle and whatnot, that I believe Bill Bill Cosby's character, Heath Clifford Huxtable says, Theo, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I see Issa Rae's show as being in dialogue with that, right? That particular trajectory of Black sitcoms where it's about always striving, right? And thinking more about self-realization. I absolutely agree with what you're saying in terms of regular Black people. And I think that leads into thinking about also how Black LAs and Black Miamis, when we think about insecure and rap shit, are on display, are part of the characters at work.
3: Yeah, I love what you're saying about pushing back against the kind of Cosby ideology of black excellence. I think you're so right. And I hadn't considered that, that with what Theo's saying, he wants to be regular people. And Cliff's point is regular people are broke right? Like, if you're going to be a regular black person, you won't have any money. And Issa Rae pushes back against that by saying these are regular black people. And like they struggle at first, but by the time we get to the end, everybody's, you know, dreams are in some way, shape or form fulfilled. Like they've done this, they've done the work, they put it forth. And they didn't have to adhere to these particular kinds of respectability politics that the Cosby show really wanted us to feel or maybe had to sort of demonstrate in the 80s and 90s were the way black people had to behave to get over that it's this real pushback against it that you can be a regular person you can be regular people and still be happy and still be successful and still be accomplished that black excellence isn't the thing we all have to strive for i love that
0: i thought that it would probably take us longer to get here but i'm so glad that you have brought this up because for me one of the greatest tensions watching insecure but also the little bit of rap shit that i have watched i think it maybe even be amplified is between the sort of aesthetics of the everyday that are part of Issa Rae's style clearly and a constant entrepreneurial bootstrapping ethos, right? In the mo- recent special Yvonne, uh, where she calls it the sort of hustle and grind culture. And she gets into it through her own career, her own life, her own inability to unwind. She feels part of this striving. You know, work is the only means of worth.
3: I went to my therapist. I was like, yo, I'm really strong. She was like, okay, let's, let's go deeper, All right? <sighs> What do you do for fun? It's like, um, I work.
0: That tension is so rich, I think, in Issa Rae's work that we have so many of the moments of people in everyday wage labor, people with their families, with their kids, these friendship relationships, but always interlaced with some sort of American dream, some sort of upward mobility. And that kind of entrepreneurial hustle ethos I, I find it a little unsettling at times. And I was hope, hoping we might talk about, like, as you said, the desire to see normality as acceptable, as a, a good thing to be representing on television. But also all of them clearly being motivated in part by this drive for a certain kind of e- excellence, oftentimes exceptional excellence, right? Having to, you know, get on t- TV, get on the radio, find fame.
2: This is interesting because I see... This tension is also, we see being worked out between like Rap Shit, for example, and um, Yvonne Orgy's special, because they have different arguments and different thrusts. I would say that Yvonne Orji actually has, in, in terms of what she's advancing in that show, and I see her as part of a different lineage. Like, although she's part of the Issa Rae universe, I actually, it seemed in, in terms of watching her, that I see the, the Chris Rock, I see the really traditional um, black male standup influence in her practice. But with Ratchet, when we turn to the, as, as you said, the aesthetics of the everyday, which I love, in Ratchet, and we also see in Insecure. I mean, there's a couple of things that I really, really like about it. First, that they're they're pushing back against this notion that the Black middle class and Black upper middle class are separated from mm. Black working class. I think many Black people, of course, know this in terms of our own communities. There's been so much research, scholarship, Think about the germinal work on, well, not necessarily germinal, but really key work on Black middle class, Mary Matilla, Black people, upper middle class, middle class are always living in the same communities, although that's not necessarily always represented in sitcoms. Like if we take something like Blackish, right, they're living in a white suburban neighborhood. And I love this sort of pivot, Issa Rae, as someone who grew up. Black middle class or upper middle class, her father being a physician. She's shining the light on the fact that everyday, regular people are in, in relationship with all sorts of people. Like Black people are always in community. So I like that sort of pivot to it. But also when we think about striving, I really was compelled by the sort of striving that we see in rap shit, which I do think is a little different than the striving that we see in even insecure. Mm-hmm. And that striving in rap shit, it's about survival, like the hustling is about survival. And I actually like the way that it's tethered to that, right? The people don't necessarily want to have to hustle in this fashion, but they're doing it to survive. And then the other sort of striving is because that there's so many doors that are closed, That's great. right? We think about with the two rappers, the, the one that also has the only fans, Mia, yeah. Mia, thank mm-hmm. you. So Mia's character, you know, I, I love seeing her as a parent, I love seeing her back in the school. And she says, I wish I had teachers who encouraged me in this way. So I think that striving is like this realization, development. So I like how the striving is framed because the striving is not to demonstrate something to the outward public. Mm. The striving is for oneself, or sometimes it's just demonstrating that sometimes we have, we just, we are doing this to survive. And that's what I found so compelling about rap shit. I really, I really enjoy rap shit. Now I feel like the striving we see in Insecure to me it seemed like depictions of some of the crises of black millennials, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who feel like they need to go particular routes, the traditional corporate route, make your money. I think we see that kind of in Molly's character. And then we have Issa's character who's working a nonprofit route and is frustrated with what she's encountering there. I think they do a good depiction of the racism that one still encounters in these progressive spaces, but also the challenges to survive. I felt like that was a depiction of some of the crises a lot of black millennials are, ha- are having as young and honestly middle career professionals and how they're negotiating that. And so there, there was to me less of a thesis there. And I feel mm-hmm. like the, the rap shit has a bit more of an argument.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. I think that there's something about insecure where all of the sort of striving was to get at the idea of like this Black millennial ennui, right? Like that there's this kind of sense of Black millennials recognizing that respectability politics aren't a route for self-actualization or personal affirmation or any of those kinds of things. And all of the career strivings felt almost secondary in some ways to the building of character and i think that with rap shit those kinds of strivings are really deeply intertwined with what the show is trying to demonstrate about this kind of Black millennial, maybe even slightly younger than millennial, right at, right at the cusp of millennial, I guess, what their experiences are. I love that in that very first episode, the whole reason that these two women get back together as friends is because Mia is desperate and needs A place to put her kid. And she sort of out of a lack of options, contacts Shauna. It's not what we saw with Insecure, where it's this fundamental friend group that we're kind of entering into, we're seeing people who are being thrust back into being friends, because they are desperate, because there aren't any other options who were close. And then these kinds of career aspirations are ultimately what separate them that it's not these people on the same sort of track or experiencing life through the same lenses and I think that's a really interesting and kind of unique vantage point when we're talking about black identity and black womanhood that in rap shit she's demonstrating the way these diverge and the way people are brought back together and this sense of how friendship changes based on your goals, which is something that we didn't really see in Insecure in the same way.
2: That's a really good point. It also makes me think about one of the things that I really like about the depiction of the friendship between Shauna and Mia is that we see who they're supposed to be friends with, right? We see Shauna's college friend group and, you know, her baby Obama boyfriend, right? And we see, and then her, her friend who's like a Spotify, like climbing a corporate ladder. And then we also see, you know, Mia's friend group who thinks that Shauna's honestly a little corny, you know, she right. first, that was such a funny scene when she had the, the pantyhose on to go to the club, right? <laughs> right, she's kind of like, just not not cool, right? She's not a hot girl. I, I love the ways that they show how that friendship is blossoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even early on, what were some of the barriers to that friendship because of presumptions they had about each other will we see and we witness like listening and concern and care. And I love how they're pushing back against stereotypes about friendships, about what kinds of people can be friends, what's the basis of friendship. I really like seeing that, like kind of pushing back in terms of those notions, particularly as it's circulating on social media. And, and we know that the writers and actors on rap Shit are so active in, in, in the conversations in uh, Black Twitter and other uh, Black social media circuits about high value people and networks and like that and yeah. how they're entering that conversation.
0: I have to sort of try to integrate this into a continuum of almost obsession with female friendships that HBO has going back decades. Insecure was self-consciously billed by both Issa Rae and Casey Bloys as a direct successor to Sex in the City and Girls, right? It is the next of the friend group comedy for women that HBO is trying to reassert its accessibility to an audience that it has sometimes been accused of underserving. And so it was initially billed as very much the successor to those previous hits. I think that it goes quite different directions. But nonetheless, as you, you point out, friendship becomes this thing that is being interrogated over and over again. And, and <laughs> stereotypes about friendships, assumptions about friendships, failures of friendship, mm-hmm. these are all clearly focal points of the show. There's also something that Yvonne Ortiz brings up in her special, right? There's a very gendered distinction she makes, right?
1: He did you a favor once and now he's your best man? This is stupid!
3: Because everybody know, like fellas, if you go to a lady and you're like, yo, do you have any friends? We're like, pick one, it's a Rolodex. How you liking black Puerto Rican or Haitian, slim thick, take your pick.
0: I won't even do that to you, shorty. I won't won't even do that. Do better, Brian. Female friendship is sort of part of the HBO brand. Undoubtedly, Yessa Ray recognized that to some extent at the outset of making Insecure. And to what extent has she been able to maybe subvert it, right? And use it to her benefit?
3: So I'll confess that I, um, and this wasn't like a political choice. I just never watched Sex and the City. So I I can't speak to that as well. Um, I know I I missed the cultural moment. It just wasn't something, it didn't speak to me. Mm -hmm. But I did watch Girls. And one of the things that's always struck me about the difference between a show like Insecure and a show like Girls is that by the end of Girls, that friend group has dissolved right? Like they're not really friends anymore. Shoshana is like over these people and she's and rightfully so. Everybody is no longer in touch with the exception of Hannah and Marnie. But even that is Marnie's kind of victorious moment of being like, I'm the one who's left. I'm still here. And it's Marnie's kind of competitive nature that we see coming out. With Insecure, one of the reasons why I really love that final season is that we see The way the four friends move on in different parts of their lives, having children, getting married, literally moving away, and still trying to maintain those connections so that we're seeing that this friend group changes and evolves as, you know, friend groups normally do as people grow up and their lives change, but that there's something that's really tethering these women to each other, that they want to be friends and that there's work involved. In that sense, it reminds me a little bit of a show that I always view as as a clear foremother living single, right? That we're seeing these four women who are all very different. Um, At the end of living single, because it's the 90s, the end is all of the women are married and they're happy, but we still get the sense that they're going to be friends with each other, right? And so there's this idea of, I think for Black womanhood, sharing these experiences with each other and feeling happily bound to each other, right? That it's not this sense of friendship out of obligation. It's the sense of friendship that evolves and you want to stay connected. So I'm interested to see if, since we only have the first season of Rap shit if we're going to see something like that with these two women who are in very different friend groups, and these friend groups are now having to necessarily merge, if that friendship that's being put to the forefront is going to necessarily make them sort of lose their other friend groups, or how this is going to evolve?
2: Similarly, I didn't watch Sex and the City. I've seen a couple of episodes here and there, and I, I'm not a fan of Lena Dunham, so I didn't watch Girls. Um, I couldn't force myself. But in terms of of female friendship um, and how they're working with that, I do think it's interesting to think about what's happening with uh, Yvonne Orgy's stand-up versus what we see Issa Rae pursue. Because I actually don't see Yvonne, even though I don't see Yvonne Orgy as part of this Issa Rae universe. I mean, she's contributed to it, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously, they're friends outside. And I think she was fantastic as Molly. But I think her particular practice does deviate them from what we see Issa Rae pursue. Friends in the Yvonne Orgy special are a placeholder till you get your man, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. what they are. That's and great. that's how she works with back and forth between, you know, Esther or even when she mentions friends, it's like the friends can introduce you to someone, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Women have friends who can introduce you to someone. How come these men's can't, men don't have friends that could they, they could introduce to me? I, I live with my, my friend Esther, but I need to swap her out. Mm-hmm. So the friends, the friends are just there until you get your man. Even as she talks mm-hmm. about, that, she's, she's there's a resentment towards like this independent woman. And it was it was a little bothersome to me. She definitely is a child of Chris Rocking. And of course she opened for him, she toured with him. She's a child of Chris Rock um, in that she has the dated references. I was like, ooh girl, independent woman was a long time ago. <laughs> some, some of the pop culture references I think were dated. And I was like, okay, I see that, how you're connected to, to, to Chris Rock in that way. But when she was talking about independent women, you notice there was this resentment, like she'd done all this striving to start her career in which she was independent or had the support of her friends, but that that energy should have been focused on partnering. It sort of reminded me, I went to Spelman College for undergrad, a fantastic institution, love it, love all my Spelman siblings. But I remember being in like round, like it was like a junior, and I was sitting and talking to a um, the senior one time and she was like, yeah, I'm about to graduate. I'll have my, um, BA, but I won't have my MRS. And I was like, Spelman offers graduate degrees heading <laughs> this <know> Spelman offers. <laughs> wow, this is a new, and like, it was so beyond me to think that she would go to college to find right. um, a spouse, right? Like, I was like, you're going to have fun, to learn, to build community, all of that. But it reminded me of that particular uh, point of view. Like, this is just, I'm doing this to find my spouse. Even when mm-hmm. she talked to everything, mm-hmm. all the achievement was about partnership, like the house, Right? The gym, the gym attracts men, right? Oh, I got a home gym. <laughs> everything was male-centered in that piece. And I don't necessarily see that happening in the projects that Issa Bray is driving. Of course, we, we think about relationships, she's talking about relationship, but that's not the driving force of the and motivating force for everything that's operating in her storytelling
3: that's such a great point and i think that really crystallizes why i liked both of the specials i think i like the first one more than the second one honestly but there's something about them that feels very 90s right like they almost feel like anachronistic and i thought maybe it was the kind of documentary elements and the skits you know, I, th- I think she's very funny. I, you know, enjoyed the specials, but there's a lot of showing that, that she's kind of showing us how correct she is by interviewing people after she tells a joke so that we see, oh, you know, she's she's correct in her assessment of what Nigerians are like, because now we've seen this. Or we can imagine how her parents act because now she has these two actors portraying her parents in this particular situation. And that all feels very 90s. And then I think that it's also that fundamental focus on men and partnership. And I don't know if it's because she's in her, I guess, mid mid to late 30s now, and she mm-hmm. feels like this is really what she needs to be focused on. But it is such a difference from what Issa Rae's ethos is in her projects. Because one of the things that I love so much about Insecure is that that love story is Molly and Issa. Like th- that's the r- relationship we're rooting for. That's the relationship we're supposed to value. You know, even if you want Issa to end up with Lawrence or you want Molly to find, you know, a husband or whatever, that all felt secondary to me from the start of the show. I was invested in, in these two characters and when they have this big falling out, that was a thing that that really broke my heart. Like I wanted them to figure it out. I wanted them to be okay. Yvonne Orji's comedy specials feel anachronistic in some way or just sort of out of step. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something notable that it does feel kind of out of step with a lot of what Issa Rae is doing.
0: There's so many things I want to follow up on, <sighs> but I hope we can stay down that road a little bit, because it it, first of all, it rings very true to me, but also 90s stand-up, like that is HBO's heyday sort of transforming the art as the primary platform, and so I'm curious whether they are to some extent trying to recapture that, as now Netflix has clearly become the primary platform for stand-up, and so I want to sort of think about, like, what is the stand-up of the 90s. How is that defined other than just it it happens on HBO, right? What might they be doing in order to recapture the glory days in some ways of HBO's stand-up brand?
2: I love this talk about it being anachronistic in 90s and also this link to HBO because I just as I was watching it, I was like, I was seeing. I was just seeing all the 90s black male comedians, right? Mm-hmm. From the outsized confidence and the way she stepped out from the attire, it, just, it made me think of Eddie Murphy. It made me think of Chris Rock and those, the leather suits, <laughs> whether it be black leather or red leather, those leather suits and all the sparkles and all of that. And then she just came out just with so much vim and vigor and confidence that it was just, that's the black male 90s stand-up template in terms of how she's operating. Also how she was incorporating, as you said, Danielle, in terms of the, the the skits and the sketches. We think about that, we think about Eddie Murphy, Robert Townsend would do that, all that. It was just, it was totally that template. In that way, it seemed like a revival. But then as you were, um, as you both were, were talking, I was thinking, well, why would she go that route? When you think about women, Black women in stand-up comedy, how to imagine success? And the fact is there are limited black women who've had traditional success in comedy, right? And even ones who are, we think about, uh, Sashir Zameda, who is amazing. I've seen her do stand up in small places and I was rolling. She is so funny, but of course it didn't work on SNL, right? And she hasn't blown up, right? She's a, of course a working and successful actor. But if Yvonne was just looking for templates. There are limited templates, like she's seen people break into the industry, but if we think about her work as being autobiographical, she's interested in excellence and success and not sort of defined from the inside, but from like an outside perspective. So if you were, if she was just thinking about, okay, well, how can I be successful? Then of course she would look to the 90s. These are people who were selling out arenas. Like That's how she would style herself. Like, I think the success that sometimes we see with like the white male comedians being offbeat or less confident, like obviously she wasn't going to pursue that. It doesn't work for black women to do that. So she looked for this black male template and that might be part of maybe the appeal to sort of selling it to execs and whatnot, but it also might be hindering her in terms of her practice. All right, but I totally see if you're thinking about avenues of entry and how to access success. I also want to bring in like the immigrant comedians, right? Like I also feel like we see some Margaret Cho there. Yes, a lot of immigrant comedians, not not all immigrants of color. Okay, how can we be accessible to a larger audience, and we are going to mock the accents of our family members. And that's been pretty consistent. And I understand it was a strategy, a strategy to gain audiences. And there's really fantastic and and challenging work that they were doing at the same time, but also they were appealing to the, okay, this is how you imagine us, and I'm gonna lean into that and then maybe pivot a little bit. So we see her, it's just like, oh my goodness, this mocking of the stereotypes of your family members, whenever I see immigrants do it, it's just so frustrating. Although I understand why they're doing it. They feel like it's a way to appeal to the audience and maybe they can get the audience on their side, but that's very, very so much what we're seeing with comedians in the 90s, immigrants of color
0: when you were saying earlier that She has this discomforting arc in the show that goes eventually to the- No, I
1: don't wanna be a strong black woman. I don't wanna be a strong I'm a weak, I'm a
3: weak black woman, please.
0: I realize, and this speaks to your point about immigrant cliches on stage, Ali Wong did that a few years ago in Baby Cobra, right? It was almost exact same arc. Like here I am, I'm incredibly successful. I present as enormously confident and competent. And yet this isn't what I want. You know, I want to never leave the house. I want to wear sweatpants. Like it's a whole set of returning to the housewife. Right?
2: That's such a good point because we watch uh, Ali Wong and then Hannah Gadsby when I teach women in the American community tradition. So we watch those and it's so interesting to be in conversation with students because their inclination, I think the inclination for a lot of people thinking about women in comedy, particularly women's standups is that they're always transgressive, right? Mm. It's just like a default transgressive position. I I, I try to push back. We can think about the ways that obviously the stand-up comedy tradition does not make space for women to be successful. Yes, there are barriers to entry, but that doesn't mean that when women enter that they're always pushing back against the tradition, right? They may have some artful ways of navigating it. But they aren't pushing back. And so we, we talk about Ali Wong's special. We I we haven't approached it from that perspective, but particularly how she works with self-deprecation. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Their default position is that this is really progressive and radical. And it's like, oh well, let's think about what's happening in the special. And she's a very engaging and artful comedian. But I think there's a really good point the points of connection between Ali Wong and Yvonne Orgy that I hadn't I hadn't observed before. Yeah.
3: I wanna circle back to the conversation about feigned accents in talking about family that Margaret Cho certainly used in the 90s uh, when talking about her own family and that Yvonne Orji is sort of recreating. And I wonder if Yvonne Orji tries to navigate some of these kind of 90s articulations of what we can sort of call women's comedy, right? If that's one of the reasons why we see the sketches and we see her actual parents sitting there is that even on some level, she recognizes what kinds of templates she has and what the expectation for comedy by immigrants, but she also has been raised in a tradition where she sees that not everyone is doing this anymore. And so she wants to even as she's making fun of her parents, there's almost this sense of guilt. And so she wants to make sure that we get to see her parents and hear her parents own words. Because with Margaret Cho, we always saw Margaret Cho imitating her mother, but then she didn't usually like have her mom come out and talk to us. So why is Yvonne Orji Imitating her mother and then having her mother talk to us. And it feels like this way of saying, my imitation is not far off, but even more importantly, I love and respect my mom and I want to make that really clear. So I just find that an interesting way she might be trying to navigate or make this more complicated than what we witnessed in the 90s, but I'm not sure.
2: I love what you said about the sketches. Also, women negotiating performance comedy. And then also seeing more opportunity in sketch comedy and that sort of style. than stand-up, traditional stand-up and how she's working with that. I actually felt like the sketches were the most successful part Mm. of the second special. I really like Yvonne Orgy as a comedic actress. So I love seeing her in that format. I think she's really compelling. She's engaging, she's fun. I really like her in those particular roles. My favorite sketch was the one where she's been interrogated and then she's in jail. I mean, it's a familiar notion of having too high standards. I mean, there's always, you can poke holes in it. But I think the way that it was depicted was actually an interesting fashion. But when we think also about what she's doing, the sketches, I totally agree with you, Danielle, that I think there's, that she wants to communicate deep, deep affection for her family. I wonder if it's about making it palatable. But then also this deep investment, this is where I also see the connection to immigrant communities, particularly Asian immigrant communities, that she's also presenting Nigerians as model minorities. And that may be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the way that she feels that she's honoring her parents or families. family. It's like, okay, I'm mocking the accents, but I'm also saying we're model minorities. That's right. Great. So yeah. the, the, the way that she was, Talking about Nigerians like that. At first, we all, we all know that's not accurate. Not, not it was just like all Nigerians are either become you know kids, but either become a engineer or a lawyer, or this or that. It's like no. Not true. It's just the Niger- Nigeria as a country and the diaspora is so vast. Come on, everybody's not a striver. That's not all Nigerians. So there's also a casting or a depiction, a public depiction of Nigerians that could be trying to be working against some of the stereotypes of Nigerians that were circulating, that you know, more troubling ones about Nigerians being scammers. Maybe she's trying to combat that. But she's embracing that mono minority, a flattening difference within mm-hmm. the Ni- Nigerian diaspora. And painting this portrait of that all Nigerians are hardworking and super duper religious, particularly Christian. Of course, we know that there's all sorts of religious diversity. So we have a, por- a portrait of Nigerianness that may be something that she finds edifying and her family does. But she certainly is in dialogue with those model minority narratives that we see both in stand-up comedy, but also in the larger culture, particularly with East Asian communities, when people talk about tiger moms and whatnot, which we know is also not true. But people are, there's this investment in casting her family in this particular way. And maybe because she feels like that's legible. Like she's seen other people do it before. Okay, uh, this is a script that I'll follow.
0: Is part of the reason that these formulas and forms of self-presentation, and even the sort of, yeah, like you said, the aesthetics of dress and style, like that that feel in some ways throwbacks to the 90s. To what extent is this because there is a kind of gatekeeping happening in stand-up? Although on the one hand, we are in an absolute stand-up comedy boom, right? That the, There have been more hours of televised stand-up produced in the last five years than I think in the entire history before that. And yet, it does feel like some of the people who are associated with 90s stand-up, and I think particularly of Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle in this way, hold an enormous amount of influence over the entire industry and there, there are probably others as well right but it does feel as though they act to some extent as gatekeepers right and getting associated with them getting to open for them to be part of their collectives and tours right it does seem to have a lot of effect on then who gets signed at hbo and who gets signed at netflix and so what made them famous in the 90s is is sort of getting recapitulated in part because some of these comedians are, are actually trying to appeal to them.
2: That's such a good point in terms of the gatekeeping. G- Chris Rock, sometimes some of his early work I really, really like. Some stuff, you know, of course, I don't like as much. But one of the things that I want to say about Chris Rock, and it's, it's just so, I feel like this is the bare minimum, but the, you know, the bar's on the floor. But the fact that, you know, we think about Wanda Sykes, we think about Leslie Jones, think about Yvonne Orji they had alliances with him and those alliances proved fruitful. Leslie Jones. And of course she didn't have a a fantastic tenure, but what black person has a fantastic tenure on SNL. Like that was, but what it did was increased her earning potential. Right. right? So it did in that regard, it was productive in that. I also just kind of wanted to name that in terms of Chris Rock and black women comedians, even though his engagement of black womanhood in his stand-up comedies is absolutely aggressive and terrible. But when we think about gay people, it made me also think of a moment. If we think, if we want to bring it into the conversation, it's not HBO, it's ABC. But we think about a similar figure to Issa Rae would be Quinta Brunson. So she was doing those. I think it was Vine back in the Vine days, right? Right? He got many, He got money. So she's doing those vines. She's on BuzzFeed. She had that that Facebook kind of mini sitcom that yes. I actually really liked. That was so good. Was right? so, so good. She had that. Um, and then she moves on, and then she, you know, she's had this tremendous success with Abbott Elementary, which I love. But I want to think about that moment when we think about gatekeeping.
0: By the way, just yeah. the, just brief interruption is on HBO Max. Like, I don't think it's accidental uh. that they acquired the rights oh. to to stream it. Yeah,
2: I didn't oh, even I mean, realize that. that. That's great for Quinton. So we, she she gets that Emmy, right? Jimmy Kimmel, you know, lays down in front of her, and it, you know, of course, a lot of people were rightly criticizing it. And then when she was asked, she was like, "He's a comedy godfather," and this is what I wanted to speak to about gatekeeping. Obviously, it was disrespectful. Like we, everybody knows that. She knows that, and I, not not to speak for her, but she knows that. But also, when we think about comedy gatekeeping, and like, how does it advance her career to alienate Jimmy Kimmel? Right. She needs to be on his show, mm-hmm. right? She needs to promote her work. It's more useful for her work to make the argument she wants to make. And then I think that's what's really successful. Whenever there are debates, I remember there was another debate about what comedians can or cannot stay. She tends to be very conservative in her commentary, right? But then her work does this other thing, which I think, and this also I think speaks to gatekeeping that I think she's, the way that she's navigating it is that her work will push back. But then if it, in conversations or interviews, she's she's not you know challenging that because I think she recognizes the power that they wield.
3: Yeah, when people asked Quinta what she thought, and I call her Quinta, like I know her. And I do see I feel like I know her because I've been watching her career for all of these years. But anyway, when people asked her, and she was like, Oh, he's a comedy godfather. And you know, he has always been so supportive. And people got angry about that. I wanted to be like, what do you want her to say? Like, what could she possibly because if she if she came out and said, You know, this is really offensive or even my feelings were hurt or anything. Then she becomes, you know, the angry black woman or the, you know, oh, she's a comedian who can't take a joke. Obviously, you know, Jimmy Kimmel was doing this, that or the other. So, of course, she has to negotiate. And of course, she has to structure this conversation in a particular kind of way so that she can continue making this really revolutionary sitcom that she's making. Uh, so yeah, this question of gatekeeping, I think, is really important. The only place that I'm seeing it shifting at all, correct me if, if there are other places that I'm overlooking, but right now where I'm seeing this sort of shift is with Bo Burnham and Gerard Carmichael, who are buddies and are making this comedy that seems to intentionally move away from our ideas of what stand-up comedy is and what it looks like. And since Gerard Carmichael won the Emmy, I'm wondering if that's going to open up into a new sort of idea of what spaces there are for different kinds of comedy. Because with Gerard Carmichael, who, you know, his, his comedy is predominantly on Netflix, he is one of the few comedians who I've seen push back against Dave Chappelle's language in really, really overt, unapologetic ways and still be rewarded for it, right? That he still won an Emmy after saying that, that he doesn't seem to care about his career, upward mobility and all of those kinds of things. Um, So now that he's won an Emmy and has more power and potential and even name recognition, I think, to open different kinds of doors i'm wondering if that's going to shift anything for millennial comedy and gen z comedy where some of the gatekeepers are just quite frankly aging out and might not have that same sort of pull that some of these newer comedians have
2: when mentioning gerard carmichael i unfortunately have not seen the most the the one that he won the emmy for i just didn't get around to it although i want to but I think of, I think it's love at the store. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the funniest jokes I've ever heard was in that. And I always said, I, like I have this essay in progress that I was gonna write about it, but you know, other things happen. But there's this joke and he says.
0: You can at least agree that some people are more important than other people.
2: Some time passes, then he, then he tells a different joke. And so that was the joke. And I was like, this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. But like, I love that he told it in the context of standup because that's the foundation of like the American comedy tradition. And like that he put it in there, let it breathe. And then he tells his next joke by saying, okay, this is structuring what I can say, how you were going to respond. Right. He was saying, it was was so funny, but it seems like there's an awareness of the mechanics and the logics of the industry. And of course, Javada's had this tremendous career up until the point where we see some more progressive work. Well, some, some, some work that's sort of pivoting. And I think all that experience with sitcoms, being in writer's rooms, where maybe there might have been hints of going against the grain, but he really wasn't. Right? And I think through all that experience, as I, and this is just obviously me speculating, but at a point where he's had so much success, conventional success, that maybe then he felt like now I can take a risk. Right? Maybe I can take a risk now and I can pivot. I've already done everything you're supposed to do when, as we think about how that might transform the landscape, the fact that he had to have that much success, right, really conventional success to even get to the point where he can say some of the things you're saying, has me less hopeful mm. <laughs> for the possibilities of like breaking the mold.
3: Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point, especially when we think about how long Gerard Carmichael has been working. Uh, what I find interesting about him though, is how so much of his success has still been on his own terms. And it's the same thing with Bo Burnham. But I think really with Gerard Carmichael, because like, Carmichael was cast, I'm not sure if you all know this, I learned this from Jesse David Fox at Vulture. Gerard Carmichael was cast in New Girl, and then decided he was Far too busy, and <laughs> turned the role down. Um, and it, it's interesting to me how different his career may have been had he taken that role. And just the sort of the the self confidence to to say like, oh, you know, I'm I, I I've decided I'm not going to take this this kind of surefire hit TV show. I'm going to do my own my own thing. Even within that, it feels like Bo Burnham and Gerard Carmichael have their own sort of. Right, like they've got their kind of small group of friends. And so I'm interested, is that going to open up into other people feeling empowered, even if they don't open up the doors necessarily? Will other people see this and say, well, you know, Gerard Carmichael got an Emmy. So let me Hannah Gadsby is not to my knowledge in in their, you know, friend group, but that same kind of pushing the boundaries of what laughter is supposed to do. And when laughter is necessary or even desirable in stand-up comedy. Um, That's one thing, to bring it back to Yvonne Orgy. one of the things that I notice is, and part of the reason it feels anachronistic to me, is because it's so laugh-centered in a way that I think in the 21st century, millennial comedy is not always about that laugh, right? Like, it's not always about just, I want to make people laugh. I want them to have catharsis. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, how uncomfortable can I make people feel? How, you know, how agitated can I make them even in a show like Insecure, which is a comedy, we have these really unfunny moments, these really heartbreaking moments, these disturbing moments, these sad moments that almost doesn't even feel like comedy. And yet this is a comedy, right? I'm, I'm very interested to see what comes after this Carmichael win. And if it if it's going to affect things at all.
0: As you acknowledge there, like one of the things that Insecure does is tap into the sort of cringy aesthetics of comedy that have become increasingly associated with the 21st century, and particularly with, I think, workplace comedies. But another thing that it does is sentimentality right and this is i think where Issa Rae and quinta brunson there are many ways in which i think their trajectories could be seen as parallel but this is one as well right is that there are strains of sentimentality in their work, that are even formalized, despite all the other ways in which what they're doing is very innovative and creative and experimental, right? Mm-hmm. There are even sort of formal elements like the end of it Insecure, which is such a romantic ending <laughs> where you just, you have a wedding and you have, you know, everybody coming together and everybody's careers are taking off, everything resolves so cleanly and neatly. There are these strains of sentiment in, in these shows, unexpected. Expected, given what the aesthetics of comedy have been in the last 10, 15, 20 years. It almost goes back to a kind of Cosby-era sitcom ideal. How, how is sentiment working for Issa Rae and Insecure, but I think similarly in Abbott Elementary, to, as a sort of complement to The Joke?
2: I just want to call Debbie Allen's name because <laughs> it's like the Debbie Allen legacy is so strong. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's been a, some renewed interest in a different world as people think about the the distinction between the first season, in which Anne Bates, who was an SNL alum and co-editor of Titters, this you know um, women's collection of humor, all of this was the showrunner, and then Debbie Allen took over, and then it became good, right? <laughs> But the Debbie Allen vision, when we think about it all the time when I'm watching Abbott Elementary, particularly is related to this because Debbie Allen's vision of that show, in addition to showcasing, right, like Black communities, like it's set in Black spaces. So we're in a HBCU, we're in a Black landscape that we see some of these contemporary sitcoms, is that there really is about these relationships between Black people. Of course, they're showing contentiousness, but really showing affection and love and intergenerational collaboration and learning and wisdom is, is so key to Debbie Allen's vision, right? Where in a, I feel like some mainstream contemporary versions where you have black folks in sitcoms, there is mostly tension between the generations, right? Mm. And what Quint is doing reminds me so much of what Debbie Allen does, because of course there are different viewpoints. You get depictions of a new generation, older generation, but there's, there's love and then there's transmission of wisdom and there's not a dismissal of the old generation. And we certainly see that with the Barbara character on Abbott Elementary. I love how Abbott Elementary has these sort of young enthusiastic folks who are right? The older generation's knowledge, and then they're proven to be wrong, right? Um, and also what Abbott Elementary does with the janitor, recognizing uh, that as important, valuable, skilled labor, his contributions to the community, we also see that on a different world, like the cook, everyone in there was mattered and was meaningful and people listened to them. They weren't disregarded. So when I think about your question about sentimentality, I think part of this is just, is really about black love, but not necessarily a romantic love, but like black love in the, in community, right? There are challenges and there are terrors, but I think really very explicitly saying there also is this love and showcasing that in many ways and sometimes in a narrative that might seem a little bit romantic but making sure that it's very clear that this love exists that's part of the fabric of black communities i see abbott elementary and in, in, in part that you see this love letter to i mean philly to an older generation and really between like generations of black people that I, you certainly saw with the different worlds so i see i see debbie allen's handprints on on all of a lot of these shows and of course you know many of these folks were they're watching a different world and watching also debbie allen's subsequent shows that's such
3: a a really important connection i think to think about how debbie allen influenced our understanding of intergenerational conversations on black sitcoms if we think about insecure we see something different but related to that in terms of molly's relationship with her mother in particular i love those moments where molly is you know molly is very i say this as the oldest daughter and only daughter in my family so like i relate i relate to to molly when she's you know trying to make sure her parents that their will is you know actually filled out and formalized and when she's trying to take care of her mother when her mother um gets sick Even that sense of frustration that Molly feels is bound by love, that it's not this kind of idea of, oh, my parents are so aggravating or they won't listen to me or I've got all this knowledge because I'm a lawyer. It's this caretaking, right? And that Molly loves her parents and feels like she's going to be lost without her mother, that it's not this kind of one-directional articulation of of, what the generations are dealing with, that there's something really valuable and, and relatable when we think, once again, about regular Black people living life, that it's this idea of finding the common ground with an older generation and grappling with having been a child and now taking care of your parents and all of these kinds of things that are I think, not often depicted with such nuance, with the exception of the shows that we've been talking about.
0: I want to make sure I ask this question. In, in around 2016, 2017, HBO started this uh, sort of at least hat-checking the need for greater representation. They have, I think... St- stuck to that in many ways over the last five or six years, but we have certainly reached some sort of pivotal moment, most evidently in a series of firings of executives that made HBO's portion and, and, and Warner Brothers' discovery more broadly, a lot wider a lot more male. But also the, uh, the decision not to pick back up some shows that seemed as though they fit the kind of HBO brand equity. They were getting awards. They were highly acclaimed, right? The showrunners had a kind of auteur celebrity increasingly. And yet HBO did pick up rap shit for a second season and does seem to be continuing to throw its resources behind Issa Rae and her community. It seems as though the talk about representation has been funneled into HBO's comedy wing. And I wonder why.
2: So, I mean, there's two things that come to mind immediately. And first, it's just that one person's like one black person breaking through or just, it, it doesn't change anything, right? It doesn't change anything. Um, and I think we see that like Issa Rae's built her brand, but I think really most importantly, more than the brand, she's built an audience that follows her, right? And so she can always demonstrate that she has that audience, you know, that she'll have her continued success. I don't know that this opens up opportunities for anyone else so i I wanted to just acknowledge that that it doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to change the landscape when we talk about the landscape you know there's of course they they invest in all of these like pipeline sort of things where it's just writers programs writers of color like that's not the issue like folks know how to write (laughs) they know how to write they know how to be in writers rooms they're not taken seriously when they're in writers rooms they don't get the opportunity to be in writers rooms like we meant we're mentioning girls earlier and of course, you know, a, a couple years ago, it went viral, like the uh, Lena Dunham's pitch for girls, which is like scribbled on half a sheet of paper, wasn't really fully. And like, of course, no black creative could ever pitch a show that, that would work in that sort of fashion. So when I see one person's success, it's like, this is great. This is not changing the landscape. It's not making it any easier for anyone else. Why comedy? This is one of the things that kind of troubles even my own engagement of comedy when I talk about, that I'm interested that, that, you know, like research, race, gender, in comedy, particularly black women humorous. Like, well, why? Like, we've always like, we've always been the humorists Like, why would you focus attention on that? Focus attention on, on something else that's edifying, right? I think there can be a little bit of prickliness about that. Like, we, we've been always cast as the comedians, as the buffoons, as this or that. And I do think this plays into why to lean into that, right? Because that's, that's the role that people feel most comfortable engaging Black voices in as a comedic voice. And also one of the things that I admire about so many Black humorists is, you know, they wear the mask. Of course, some people just lean into stereotype, but some people have developed really sophisticated ways of appealing to audiences' expectations and also, you know, and doing some really innovative work within them in terms of uh, American entertainment where people, if they're comfortable with seeing black folks, it's in that particular role. I think one of the reasons why Issa Rae continues
3: to have such success uh, with HBO is because she is so savvy with social media because that's where she started Um, this question of audience and the fact that like, Issa ray in a way i haven't seen as many showrunners do is really engaged with responding to people as they're watching the show and sort of anticipating what they're saying and sort of playfully pushing back when people get you know we're angry that insecure wasn't long enough or there weren't enough episodes that she'd always comment so it became this sort of playful it's the reason why you feel like you know quinta you feel like you know isa and all of these kinds of things that she fosters that beautifully. And so it it gives her this kind of lasting power with a company like HBO that's going to be interested to see how many times the show is tweeted, how many times people are, you know, using these hashtags and all of these kinds of things, what sort of engagement is happening. And then I think, yeah, the, you know, this question of Black comedy, do people feel that, that sort of mainstream audiences feel this is where Black Entertainment fits anyway, which is why what Issa Ray did with Insecure, this question of sentimentality, this question of cringe, this question of the moments that make us uncomfortable or sad is really beautiful because she almost lured you in with the promise of comedy, but doesn't fulfill mm-hmm. it every time that if you want to laugh, you're also going to be really invested in these people and see them as fully human and see them as more than these stereotypes or these sort of two-dimensional figures that that now you have to take all of them in and see them as they struggle And, um, and that the struggle looks different from Black struggle the way we also see that oftentimes in mainstream media, that it's just this sort of nuanced depiction of the reality of Black millennial life.
0: One of the things that I would say about Insecure is that it has to be one of the most successful television shows in terms of the integration of mobile first cinematography, right? That. A lot of networks have been trying to do this, right? Trying to come up with premises, trying to come up with shows in which they can navigate some sort of intersection between sort of traditional television genres and web-based or mobile-based. Again, both Quinta Brunson and especially Issa Rae have done this more effectively than just about anybody. And it continues on rap shit. In fact, maybe even more so on rap shit, right? It's both in and out. As you said, there's also this mobilization of social media in the reception process and engaging with that reception, which is part of what makes the show more valuable to hbo is recognizing that it's not just nielsen ratings right that it's also various other ways in which hbo is going to metricize and evaluate its products and so i think the question i want to ask is in some ways is this a race showing us a way to escape this cycle right and you know what's happened between 2016 and now strikes me as jalila said like this happens over and over again, right? We see some sort of success from a black creator as being the gateway to a new era, right? But that does not prove to necessarily be true. But with the sort of the, the nicheification, the narrow casting that seems to be defining the streaming era, at least up to this point, does that mean the power of, say, black Twitter is amplified? that this is a niche that has a very long legacy, a very long history, that maybe has more power in a media landscape that is going to become increasingly diversified. And therefore, each individual constituency, each individual narrow-casting demographic maybe gains more power right and this is something that maybe issere's work is very directly mobilizing and appealing to
3: people are hungry for representations that feel More authentic, right? (laughs) Whatever authenticity actually means. It's kind of this fraught term. I'm not sure how I feel about it, even when I use it. I think this goes back to that question of millennial black, particularly black millennial ennui, but millennial ennui in general, and this this sense of sort of boredom and dissatisfaction with traditional narratives. And so whatever can be done that feels like it's Thinking about that is going to be exciting and uh, desirable for a lot of audiences right now.
2: As we've been talking, I've been thinking about the live studio audience, right? right? Which we don't encounter anymore. But thinking about the relationship of a live studio audience to sitcoms. Martin, you know, of course, a brilliant sitcom showcasing Amazing Towns. In addition to Martin Lawrence, Tisha Campbell and Tashina Arnold. Campbell, Tashina, thank you. Tashina, absolute physical comedian, genius, right? But when I think about that show and the tremendous talents there, I I think about, you know, the outtakes. And, you know, a lot of folks watch them. They're they're in syndication, but I also watch them on YouTube. And there are these moments and so many of the funny outtakes, like there's this really funny outtake where they're singing This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan. And Martin says in this outtake, you know, this is for our audience. We're doing this for our studio audience. So as we think also about Issa Rae's relationship to the audience. It's also thinking about what is the, res- the accountability to an audience, right? <laughs> like, yes, they're selling something because sometimes the pivot is just like, okay, sell this, you have to watch this or something else won't get made. And we need this and I need to do this. I knew this, but there is this relationship with the audience that I do see certain creators taking seriously. Like I have a relationship and I'm accountable to my audience, right? And I need to entertain and I need to do something. I need to engage. I need to honor. I need to respect. And sometimes that can be like, okay, come on now, I can't give you a longer episode. Oh, okay, okay, all right. But just like, I'm listening to you, I'm hearing you, I feel accountable to you, which creates a different sort of long-term relationship with viewing audiences, right? In the way that people were excited that Quinta's show used, I think it was their Emmy promotion budget or one of their budgets to, to give to schools, this is a different, a different sort of relationship with the the audience that is not just extractive. Like we just need your views. That's great.
3: I love that because I think so frequently people talk about the kind of parasocial relationship, right? Like, oh, you people are so interested in this comedian. You care so much about their life, and that can be problematic, of course. But the comedian also cares about their audience, right? And that part is is frequently dismissed what Issa Rae and what Quinta are doing are these kinds of gestures and moves that let us know that they're in this too, that it's not just us sort of giving them our love and interest that they're interested in us too, that they, that they love their audience, that they appreciate that we're, you know, watching them and supporting them. And that's, that's really important, I think, especially in 21st century comedy
0: that was Danielle Fuentes Morgan and Julie Burrell. For a bibliography of works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash rooting for everybody black. Next episode, I'll be talking with Joanna Isaacson and Madeline Lane McKinley about genre and social reproduction, especially in HBO's half-hour scripted shows. Until then... Here's the snarling yarns with this season's theme, Don't go fishing. Because you know
1: where the gets I don't go fishing off the company, too. There's nothing but heartbreak where the bars from hell. Nothing but heartbreak where the bars from hell. So when your eyes do wander and your heart does ponder, don't you, sister? Don't you even wonder when your hands do? Touch and her heart does flutter, don't you, sister? Don't you care too much? Uh-huh. 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 Uh huh. oh I don't go fishing off the company beat cause you know where that'll get you, to. I uh, don't go fishing off the company beat. There's nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell. Nothing but heartbreak where the
4: This love, it's a bunch of baloney and there ain't no mail in the county, this office love, I'm, I'm so tired of, it's like I've been running a race, one of those ultra marathons in my sleep, I should have known when my computer started to grow horns, thank you for the 17 email, that picture of your new flip-flops that don't flip, thank you. your darling back at home. But this kind of offset love, this offset love, is played out, I should have known. Every time I get an email from you, it's like a smoke machine fires up. There's a little bit of smoke coming out the sides. I can see it twinkling out of the ampersand. I'm back in the refrigerator What's the expiration date on yours and mine? Thank you for the 17 emails It feels like I'm at a laundromat There's only one other person here And she's coughing And she's watching her clothes go round and round And I say, what do you see in that? And she says, every man's got a heart like a tumbleweed Every woman's got a heart like a cactus Every man's got a heart like a
1: tumbleweed And every woman's got No. Nah.